Hey, good morning, everybody. Kind of nice I didn't have to bring my snow shovels this morning. I was kind of thinking, boy, it was supposed to hit and it didn't, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And uh, we're doing a series on work, uh, or on Tangled, and this morning we're talking about work. Let me get my words straight there. So we've been doing a whole series on that, and uh, we're going to be wrapping up this series next week, and then uh, moving on to a series called, And This Too Shall Pass, Shall Come to Pass. And uh, doing a more prophetic bent as we head towards Easter. So just give you a little heads up where we're going. Um, before we get started this morning, a lot of things just going crazy in our world right now. I don't know if you heard about the multiple stabbings in China and the crazy deal that went on there. And they think it's some kind of terrorist thing. They don't know what's going on with that. And then this morning we got war, word that war broke out in Ukraine. And that's a, a significant deal. Over the last 20 years... Uh, most of the Christian world has done an, an enormous amount of outreach in the Ukraine and all kinds of people have become Christians. So what that means right now this morning as we sit here, all kinds of moms and kids and stuff who are believers are standing in the middle of harm's way. So we're going to take a pause and let's pray for that before we go on this morning. Father, as we stand before you, we recognize that our world is dynamic and moving. And we recognize that in different places, um, there's all kinds of different prayers going up and that uh, how we pray here is very different than how they'd be praying in the Ukraine to you right now. And Lord, we'd lift up the believers to you. We would lift up the church and ask that you'd preserve it and protect it. And we seek you for that. And we ask for your help and your strength and your guidance in that. And we pray that uh, you would uh, intervene. Uh, probably is the best word I could come up with. And what's going on. Lord, we know that we live in a time of wars and rumors of wars. And we, we seek you for uh, being uh, your people in the midst of all that. And today we're talking about a topic, Lord, that um, is one that all of us know. It's work. And what your word says on work and, and how it gets entangled. And so we seek you as we walk through this this morning that uh, you'd be with us. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. Hey, by the way, something special this morning I just saw. Bob Self, would you stand up, please? Celebrating his 80th birthday. Give him a hand. <laughs> Happy birthday, bro. <laughs> All right, take your Bibles and turn. We're going to start. So what we're going to do this morning is talk about work itself first. Before we talk about how it gets entangled. All right, Because I think one of the entanglements is how work and the definitions of it and that have all been spun uh, in our culture. So I want to take a look at what the Bible has to actually say about work. Then next week we'll look at how it gets entangled. I don't think that'll be too much of a secret to you. But I want to take you to Genesis and a look at this verse here. Genesis 2.15 It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And I want to suggest this morning that many of us have a wrong picture of heaven. Um, as we sit here, one of the stereotypical pictures we have is we'll sit on a cloud and float with a harp and pluck along doing music. Right. And we're kind of like, really, forever? Boy, that's, mm. you know, and, and so we kind of have this idea of heaven is a place of idleness. So we're on our, our uh, beach chair. Right. And we got our Arnold Palmer and, and you and Jesus bumping knuckles together. Nice day. Isn't this awesome kind of deal? And we sort of have that picture. But I want to suggest that the reason we um, think of that is because we have some pictures out of sequence. And one of them is with um, this uh, chap picture in Genesis in chapter 2. And I want to suggest that we tend to come to think that way because we, we start to believe that work, all human work, jobs, labor, toil, are a result of the fall and are thus cursed. The fall is when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They ate what they weren't supposed to eat, and they got kicked out. And it's called a lot of different things in Catholic theology. It's called original sin. But it's this idea that something's wrong, something's broken. Something, you know, the old, I'm okay, you're okay. The Bible says, no, we're not. There's something that's broken inside of us, and that's called the fall. And so that fall has created a debris field all through human history and stained just about everything. And so, we're talking about that. One of the things we think it's stained, that it's really wrecked, is work. Right? And if I just didn't have to work, life would be great. And I want to suggest to you that that's not actually accurate 
biblically. If you look at this verse very carefully, you'll see that God set man in paradise to what? To work. This is before the fall. This is before uh, there was anything we know of sin. Matter of fact, we said last week that one of Adam's assignments was the naming of the animals. And we said, just think about uh, that job and, and what that would take if you had to name all the animals. I know in uh, our home, some, if it was Pam's job, some animals wouldn't have been named because snakes would have been all killed at that point. But, no, we don't do snakes at our house. And, and so uh, they, those wouldn't have been named. But just think about the enormity of the task of naming all the animals. And so what you find pre-fall, before sin, is God placed man uh, with these assignments in the garden that they were to... Um, he was to name the animals, and then he was to work the garden. I guess even in paradise, gardening is a good thing. God himself enjoys work. It says in this verse in Genesis, just a little far, Genesis 2 and 3, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so that on the seventh day, he rested from all his, the word there is work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And we often focus on that seventh day, Sabbath, a day of rest, right? And we make big mention. But what we forget about is the six previous days that he worked and set everything in motion in terms of the creation. That God worked hard and that it took a lot to put together what we see that we call our world and our universe. And here's what I'm suggesting. Good, solid, healthy, vigorous work will be the order of the day in heaven, along with balanced and appropriate rest as well. There will be lots of really cool challenges. There will be lots of really cool things to do. And here's the great part. You won't get tired like you do down here. Your body won't fall apart. Your eyesight will actually work and you can hear. It'll be a fabulous thing, right? And so work as we know it in heaven will be completely different than we understood it, but in essence will be the same because it will be the great things to do. Now, the Bible talks about the fact that, and this is another thing we get wrong, that God is still working. That he's working now today, right here as, as we sit, and that it talks about he is, the, the picture is he's building a house or a temple. Let's take a look at that quickly. In Hebrews, if you've got your Bible or your tablet or your phone, whichever you look up right now, Hebrews chapter 3 it says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And that is the idea that Moses was a prophet and talked about one who, like Moses, would come later, who would fulfill all things. That's obviously Jesus. But in that process, Moses was a servant in the house. But Christ, Jesus, when he came, is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and the boasting in our hope. So, in other words, Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus built the house. Right? He's the contractor. He's the architect. He's the guy who's putting it together right now. It talks about that God is still working, that he is presently building. And that in that house, we are what's called in Scripture, a unique picture, living stones. We are part of the building that he's putting together. It says in first, and that should be first Peter. Sorry, I got just Peter up there. First Peter two, four and five it says, um, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's putting a big thing together and the big thing he's putting together is us. Living stones. He's collecting them from all over the planet and putting together in uh, what's called this house or this temple. And you look in Revelation, he's building what's called the New Jerusalem. And it's going to be an amazing, amazing setup. But God is working on that. So when we ask, what is God working on today? The answer is, he's working on us. He's working in us. He's getting ready to build. 
And yes, he's still working. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks a lot about work. Let's just this morning do a quick survey. We won't be able to get to everything, and there's a lot I'm leaving out due to time constraints. But let me give you the big basic picture that's located within Scripture in regards to this topic of work. Let's start with Ecclesiastes. It says, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? It says, just like we enjoy eating and drinking and find satisfaction with that, so too we should find satisfaction from our work and that that is a gift from God. If you can find satisfaction in your work, that's actually a gift from God and a, and a blessing from God. We'll, we'll show you that a little later. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, is loaded with wisdom and encouragement on being wise about work and having a good work ethic. It reserves its special ire for the fool or the sluggard with numerous examples of what not to do, expressing the thought that one who is slack in his work is a brother to one who destroys. But it also gives great praise to those who do their work well. So, just a quick shot through Proverbs. Here's a couple of them. Proverbs 14, 23. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Right? And we say that even in our day. Would you just stop talking and get, get moving on it? Right? Just, get, just do it. Quit talking about it. Because Proverbs understood you could talk about it all you want, but it never gets to that place where you actually do it. And Proverbs is saying there is wisdom and skill in getting to it, to doing it. All, and notice it says hard work. All hard work brings a, a profit. Proverbs 22.9 Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. It will not serve before obscure men. And we know this is true. If somebody is excellent at what they do, they gain recognition in front of people of high status because it is known that they do their work well. Right? Just look at uh, the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl parade and Pete Carroll and the job he did coaching the Seahawks. And we're not even talking about a Christian example there. We're just talking about somebody who does their job well, gets high acclaim and gets lauded by other people. And we know that to be true. Proverbs twenty four twenty seven. Finish your outdoor work and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Now, this one makes no sense at all, but I want to explain it to you because it's important. We do not come from a farming background. Now, some of you may have chickens, right? But, okay. Um, but that's not a, a farming deal, right? If you grow up in an agricultural uh, society, though, like I did on the farm, what this is saying is, hey, you could build your house and that's nice and get your house all comfortable and get it all set up. But if you do that in springtime when you miss planting, that's great. You're going to have a nice warm house all through the fall and winter, but you're going to have nothing to eat. What it's saying is, get your fields planted. Get everything plowed and get everything planted and get it sown so that it's ready to go. Then work on your house. Because why? You can work on your house, and as you're working on your house, what's happening in the fields? It is growing. And it is raising a crop. And so when you're in your house and then fall comes, you have food to eat. And the whole issue here is prioritizing our work. Right? Right priorities. What's the most important thing to get done? Have you ever sat down and said, okay, I've got five things to do. What, what, do I, what do I have to get done here? Right? Make a list, you know, knock it out kind of thing. And in our world, isn't that true? And it's really hard now because we're in the electronic age. And there's all kinds of distractions. So when you jump on your computer, there's a lot of places you can go that are not work. Right? You can... Look up all kinds of stuff and all kinds of interesting facts and history tidbits and sports things. and all. Does that necessarily mean you're getting your work done? No. Okay. We can be enormously distracted in our work in this culture. So what it's saying is line up your priorities. In other words, if you have priorities 1 to 47, don't start with 47 and work your way towards 1. You might only get to 20. And that means the top 20 things don't get done. If you want to do it right, what does it say? Start with one. Work with one, get down, and you might get down to 17, but you've got the top 17 things done. The other ones probably can wait, and we'll, the list will reorder itself, right? So it's talking here about priorities of, of ordering your work in a right way. Proverbs 31. 
the whole chapter is about a hard-working woman. The whole chapter is about a godly, discerning woman who takes care of her home. By the way, if you're a mom, you work. Right? Mom's in here. Hardest work in the world is being a mom. And in our culture, if you go to the store and say, what do you do for work? Oh, I'm a mom. Oh, you get that kind of attitude. You know, like, oh, you poor thing. You don't have a life. You poor thing. You don't really have a job. Poor thing. You don't really have any money. Poor thing. You don't have any status. You poor thing. What a loser. You're a mom. You get that attitude, right? I've, they've said it. In ours, when we show up with all our four, when they were little, it's, are these all yours? Yeah. Oh, you poor thing, you know. You get, well, it actually happened at the store several times. If you're a mom, that is hard, hard work. Just try having four kids under five years old chasing them. Okay? It's a good aerobic program. But it's really hard work, and it is important work. It is the most important work on the face of the planet. It's shaping and educating and providing for your children, and it takes all you've got and then some. And many times we use the phrase, we're pulling our hair out. Why? Because we don't feel we have the discernment or the knowledge or the skill to raise all those little rumbling things that are in our home, right? And, and we, we have to pray. But I want to tell you here, being a mom is God-ordained work. Don't you ever, ever feel sorry about that or go, I'm a second-class citizen in the kingdom because I'm a mom. Uh-uh. No, no, no. That's, a, that's God's stuff. But it has the virtues of that woman and what she does. Here's the scriptural admonitions. I'm going to be in the book of Colossians and 1 Thessalonians to pull out four big nuggets for you right now. So Colossians chapter 3, it says this, Whatever you do in deed, in word or deed, do everything in... Oops, it didn't come up, sorry. There we go. There we go. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do in word or deed. In other words, we have this problem that we, uh, we call some work holy and some work not holy. So, for example, what I do is holy because I'm the pastor. But what you do isn't holy because you're out in the workforce. And the Bible doesn't see any distinction with that at all. What you do is holy. What I do is holy. I better do my job well, right? You better do your job well. Because we've been placed in different environments and all of that is our job from God. And it says whatever you do, whatever you're called to do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. Look at Colossians 3. Just go down to verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily. In other words, throw yourself into it. As for the Lord and not for men. Why? Because the Bible recognizes that there's a lot of injustice and a lot of things aren't perfect in the work situation. And you don't aim at your boss. You aim at working at, for the Lord. Uh, the clearest story I have of this for myself is when I first came to Christ, I was a brand new believer in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I went to work for Green Bay Canning Corporation, very prestigious company. And what they did was they collected all the vegetables and fruit and that kind of stuff, and then they canned it, all right? So when you go to the store and you see the cans, I actually was the guy who did the labels and did the cans and did all that, right? And so my job, my first job... Uh, at Green Bay Canning was they had the corn come through and the corn would come in and I had a stick and it was about this long and I would poke the corn so that it would go straight so that when it went in, it would uh, cut the corn off the cob and therefore when you sit at your dinner table and you have a nice plate of corn, it doesn't have a whole lot of husk and a whole lot of cob in it because it went through the cutter well and now you just have corn, right? That was my job, right? Very prestigious job written up in the New York Times, and they paid me well. All right. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I just got saved. This is my job? This is, you're kidding me. Seriously? Now, I grew up on a farm and I worked on a farm. But even for a farm kid, this was bad. Right? Boy, this is exciting. 
right? And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, how in the world could this possibly be glorifying Jesus? It can't, this, but I thought to myself, well, if my dad gave me a good work ethic, so I didn't have to worry about that part. And so um, I thought, well, if this is my job, I'm going to do it. Well, I will be the best corn steer into the cutter guy they've ever had at Green Bay Canning in the history of the corporation. Right. And so I'm praying and I'm singing and I'm making sure those things go in just straight. And I didn't do that more than 30 minutes. And a guy came up, tapped me on the shoulder. He says, hey, are you Steve Mitchell? And I go, yeah. He says, well, you need to come with me. And I said, why? He said, well, you, you're a forklift driver, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, I did that at Lake to Lake. And he said, well, you've got to come to me. I said, well, what about the corn? Ah, the corn will take care of itself. Come, you know, come with me. And so I went from the corn shucker to the, the uh, forklift driver. And then that job led me into uh, coming out to Seattle and being the youth guy at North Shore years ago. Starting that. But here's the point of that. God was in those jobs. God had me set up doing that stuff. And even though I didn't see the importance of it, as I look back now, the issue wasn't the job itself. The issue was the way I did the job. Okay? And fortunately, and I would have to give credit to the Lord for this because I doubt it was me because I'm pretty carnal and grumbly by nature. Um, I, I made the right choice to do it for the Lord. And I have all kinds of stories in that canning factory of how God used then the forklift driving job, because um, we had guys like Noel the drug addict, and we had all kinds of guys like that that I worked with, that God used that whole thing. I don't have time to go into them this morning, but that led to specific things that God kept using because my heart towards the work was right. It wasn't about the work, it was about the right heart towards the work. And I, I want to suggest that that's what this is saying here. When we are called to our work, we are serving the Lord. Look at First Thessalonians. It says, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. The more and more was to love each other. We encourage you to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The early church did not know or talk about or understand a welfare state. You were supposed to work. It was important that you work. And that they didn't have a lot of the buffers we understand these days. And so working was part of what they had uh, to accomplish. And so they were encouraged to work hard. Matter of fact, it was so serious that um, it was an issue of how they were perceived as the church. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, for even when we were with you... We would give you this command. Notice it's a command, it's not a suggestion. We give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That'd change a few things in our country, wouldn't it? For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Do we have busy bodies in our culture? Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so the idea there is Paul's talking about a responsibility factor. Now when they're talking about this, there's a twist to it. We'll talk more about it next week. But this is not the pull up your bootstraps, um, lean in, grind harder, 24-7, everything I got, I'm into it. I ignore my wife. I ignore my family. I ignore all that. And I just grind it for the dollar. And the more dollars I make, the greater I am. And therefore, that's where my prestige and honor comes from. That's not what this is talking about at all. It's talking about operating with the grace and the gifting God has given you in the work He's given you. And therefore, asking God to give you a grace appropriate for what He's called you to do. You've heard me pray Many times, Jesus, give me a grace appropriate for what you've called me to do. All right? uh, I didn't know you could do this 35 years ago. I'm astonished that I do this. If you knew my life story, you'd be astonished too. All right? But God has set it up that I have a work to do. Likewise, you have a work to do. And therefore, you may be up against things you don't know what to do, and you're going to have to ask for the same kind of grace. I sometimes have to ask for it daily. 
right? You probably do it in your setting as well. Because that work is the challenge. And in that then, you see, you see the Lord. In this, we're talking about... Um, one of the things this brings us to, or brought me to, was um, the original Puritan work ethic. Right? We talk about the Puritans, and often they're painted in terrible light. They're painted as a, a gruesome, uh, unfunny, uh, rigid group of people, and all they did was work, 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 and therefore we've got to get away from the Puritan work ethic because that's what's wrecked our country. And I want to suggest to you that's been a phenomenal job of whitewashing and uh, uh, propaganda in our country. The Puritan work ethic was a beautiful thing. Let me take you for a quick walk through it. I found an article. It's uh, up here. You can see the name Leland Kylan. And uh, it was written in 206. And it's the original. It's on the Protestant work ethic. And he starts out... In this, describing Richard Baxter, Richard Baxter was one of the main spokespeople for the Puritans. And Richard Baxter was uh, sick most of his life. So he never knew if he'd make it to the next Sunday preaching to his people. And so, from this life of poor health, Baxter preached and said, "As, As never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. In other words... You better listen to what I'm saying because I may not be here next week. And dying men tend to tell the truth, right? And so that's how he preached. And so it was a kind of a cool, cool deal. It says, Living daily in the shadow of eternity gave the Puritans a deep appreciation for living every moment on this earth to the fullest for God. Promise not long life to yourselves, Baxter advised, but live as those who are always uncertain of another day. For the Puritans to redeem the time that was a phrase Baxter coined, meant to order one's daily life in accordance with godly principles and for maximum effectiveness. One of the Puritans' favorite epithets was well-ordered. Just have things in right order. My wife gets that much better than I do. Their opponents nicknamed them the disciplinarians. The Puritans aspired to be worldly saints. Christians with earth as their sphere of activity and with heaven as their ultimate hope. Baxter exhorted his readers, write upon the doors of thy shop and thy chamber. In other words, write on the doors of your, your workplace and your house, the places where you live. It says, write on those, this is the time on which my endless life depends. He said dependeth, but depends we get better, right? This is the time on which my endless life depends. In other words, this is the focus. This is your calling. This is the place where you serve. So, a couple things, some characteristics, three characteristics, uh, there are three vintage traits he talks about in this article. The ideal of a God-centered life, the doctrine of calling or vocation, and the conviction that all of life is God's. Let's look at these quickly, because I think they're worth walking through. The idea of a God-centered life. Kelgen says this, The Puritan sense of priorities in life was one of their greatest strengths. Putting God first and valuing everything else in relation to God was a recurrent Puritan theme. Baxter's parting advice to his parishioners at his church was to be sure to maintain a constant delight in God. Now, that's not what you expected to hear, was it? To be sure to maintain a constant delight in God. Most of the time we think of the Puritans as grim, gruesome, grinded out, right? And one of their big things was joy. One of their things was find delight in the workplace and where you're serving. And in that, when you find God, you'll find joy and you'll find delight. It says, um, oops, i got to find my spot here. Preaching before the Houses of Parliament, Cornelius Burgess admonished everyone present to lift up his soul to take hold of God and to be glued and united to him to be, on, be, to be only His forever. So they were talking about being glued to God. Right? We talk about being glued at the hip. Right? That's the saying we use. This idea of I'm tied that closely to it. For the Puritans, the God-centered life meant making the quest for spiritual and moral holiness the great business of life. Making the quest for spiritual and moral holiness the great business of life. 
In a divine commonwealth, wrote Baxter, holiness must have the principal honor and encouragement. And a great difference to be made between the precious and the vile. So, for example, in our world today, because it's electronic, it's very easy. There's a lot of stuff available to us. And he's saying the primary issue is making a difference between the precious and the vile. And lining up with the precious, what's what's important to God. Our own culture has conspired to make such holiness burdensome, right? And isn't that true? Oh, you go to church? Well, that must be hard waking up Sunday morning. Why would you could sleep in? Why would you do that? High school, come on, let's party. Let's go. Oh, you're a goody two shoes. Oh, well, okay, you're kind of a nice person, but you're you're really boring. I mean, gosh, don't you do anything? Right? It gets painted as this burdensome, dry. Chewing on chalk dust kind of experience. But that's not really true. The Puritans found it an appealing prospect. Ralph Benning, in a book, in a, in a book-linked treatise on sin, called Holiness, and listen to this description. The beauty of earth and heaven, without which we cannot live well on earth, nor shall we ever live in heaven. Isn't that an amazing description? says the it, holiness is the beauty of earth and heaven without which we cannot live well on earth, nor shall we ever live in heaven. Of course, it takes vigilance over one's action to produce a holy lifestyle. Very tellingly, the Puritans repeatedly use such words as watching, exact walking, mortification to describe their preferred lifestyle. We talk it here as the kingdom gospel at Northview and the whole idea of surrender. The idea that Jesus is Lord, he's on the throne, and that you make a very great you, you make a very bad Jesus. Right? And when we take over that spot and we start running things, we usually run into pretty deep problems and pretty deep troubles. And that's because you were never designed to be God, you were designed to be you. And in that, we've got to learn to take all our cards and put them on the table or put all the eggs in the basket, so to speak, and put that there so that Jesus is Lord and that He has a right to speak into our life on any and all topics that come our way. Usually, we are manipulative on that, and we will reserve 75% for the Lord. The other 25% we want to negotiate on. Usually, there'll be one or two that we keep way, way in our back pocket, and we will use the other 20% as a smokescreen, so that last 5% we can just keep scooting along and say, no, don't talk to me about that one, don't talk to me about that one. No, no, what about this, and what about this? But the truth is, there's one we want to hold, There's one we don't want to put on the table with the Lord. We don't want to wrestle it. That's just common human nature. In Puritan thinking, the Christian life was a heroic adventure requiring a full quota of energy. Christianity is not a sedentary profession or employment, wrote Baxter, adding, sitting still will lose you heaven as well as if you run from it. The Puritans were the activists of their day. In a letter to the Speaker of House of Commons, Oliver Cromwell crossed out the words wait on and made, made his statement read, we who have wrestled with God for a blessing. Not we who have waited on God for a blessing, we who wrestle with God. The idea here is that there's two ways we can really default in terms of our work. We can sit still and not do what we're supposed to be doing. Or we can run away from what we're supposed to be doing and not do it. Right? And so we end up in a mess either way we go. The right way, the heroic way, is to engage with God in His work. What is His work? What does He want from you? What does He want to do inside of you? And how does He want to use your life? That is a heroic task that many, today especially, are running from. And I want to suggest to you this morning, if you're here this morning, God's proud of you and pleased with you because you made the effort to come and worship Him and listen and to think about what He's talking about and to process that with Him. And that's a big, big deal. The Puritans thought that was important. Stressing the God-centered life can lead to other, an otherly world withdrawal from everyday life. In other words, you can become so heavenly-minded you're no earthly good. Remember that saying? Right? That idea. For the Puritans, it produced the exact opposite. This engagement idea. Richard Seib sounded the keynote, the life of a Christian 
is wondrously ruled in this world by the consideration and meditation of the life in the other world. The doctrinal matrix that equipped the Puritans to integrate the two worlds was their thoroughly developed ideas on calling or vocation. Now that might have been just a little abstract for you, but if it was, it'll lead into this one and this one won't be. Here's the idea of the doctrine of vocation. I want to say this is very important to us this morning. It says, The Puritans spoke of two callings, a general calling and a particular calling. The general calling is the same for everyone and consists of a call to conversion and godliness. The general calling, wrote Roland Perkins, is the calling of Christianity, which is common to all that live on the church of God. It is whereby a man is called out of the world to be a child of God. And that is true here this morning as well. We would that everyone who's here would not just listen to the word, but do the word. We would that every person in this room would be saved. That when you get to eternity and you stand in judgment and God stand and by the way, a wink and a nod and a good story isn't going to fly it that day. Okay? And God looks at you and says, why should I let you into heaven? You would know in your heart that the right answer is because I accepted the work that the Lord Jesus did for me. And by faith, I was saved by you. And therefore, I'm allowed to come in because of what you've done for me. That is the hope of our church. That is the hope of everybody who sits in this auditorium. That they would have that conviction. They would have that faith. They would have that salvation. So that's the general calling. But the particular calling is different. A particular calling consists of the specific task and occupation that God places before a person in the course of daily living. It focuses on, but is not limited to, the work that a person does for a livelihood. Several important corollaries follow from this doctrine of vocation. Since God is the one who calls people to their work, the worker becomes a steward who serves God. Thomas Manton thus commented that every creature is God's servant and has his work to do wherein to glorify God, some in one calling and some in another. And this breaks down the whole idea that, for example, what I do is holy. We would say, Steve's in the ministry, right? And, and that's what a pastor does, and, and you're in the ministry, and that's a high and holy calling. It is. I better do it well. I should be holy. You should pray more. For me, on that. Alright? But what does it also say? The calling you have is equally as high and as holy. In other words, we are placed in our jobs, we are placed in our neighborhoods. The things we have to do are given to us by God. Not just work, but the general overall things we have to do. Right? Think of your world and the things you have to do are ordained by God and therefore is your calling or vocation and it is holy. And therefore there's not a secular or sacred, there's a holy. We are called in a particular way to particular things. I'm looking at different friends and I'm looking at Brian and what Brian does at work, I would be no good at. Okay? But he's not necessarily good at what I do as well either. I'm looking at Mike Vitale. I could not do, I can't even use the words that Mike Vitale uses in his, because he works for Microsoft, right? Who cares if you're a comma off? Right? In the computer world, that's a big deal. Right? I don't know that language. I don't know how to do that. Okay? But Mike can't do this either. Likewise for you, there's things that you are called specifically to, and that is what this is, is talking about. It says the Puritan view that God calls all workers to their task in the world dignifies all legitimate kinds of work. Notice legitimate kinds of work. There are evil kinds of work that we should not be involved in. All right? There's stuff that we should not do or be associated or lined up with. But it legitimates or dignifies all legitimate kinds of work. Above all, the Puritan doctrine of vocation sanctifies common work. William Tyndale said that if we look externally... There is a difference between the washing of dishes and the preaching of the word of God. Right? We would say, yeah, there's a difference to that. But then he goes on to say this. But as touching to please God, there's no difference at all. 
In other words, if you are sitting there and you are washing dishes and you're doing it for the glory of God, that carries the same weight as if you were sitting here preaching and doing it for the glory of God. Brother, Brother Andrew was once asked if he was, they were playing a game of chess and he said, Brother Andrew, if Jesus were going to come back in the next five minutes, what would you, what would you do? He said, nothing, I would keep playing chess because I'm playing chess for the glory of God. You see how that takes out the anxiety-riddled thing of, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing what God? And just says, hey, what's before me? What have I been given to do? Let me do that for the glory of God. Brings enormous peace. It takes out anxiety. And it adds dignity to what we've been asked to do. Are we all asked to do the same thing? No. Do, are we all asked to serve the Lord? Yes. Baxter explained how this could be God looks, not principally, and by the way, I'm changing the language here so we can understand it because it's looketh and, it, and all that stuff. God looks not principally at the external part of what the person is doing, but much more on the heart of him that's doing it. In other words, what's the state of my heart? What mattered at Green Bay Canning wasn't the work I was doing. It was the heart that I was doing it with. Right? And likewise, that is true for us. And that means, so for example, let's say you don't have work. Let's say you're out of a job right now. Or let's say you're retired. You still have work to do. Right? There is a things that you have to do, and you are to do those well. What if you're in a, not the best job in the world? You still need to do that work as unto the Lord and find delight in it, as impossible as that sounds. Many of us never think about praying at our work. And God, what's before me and what, should I, what is it that you've given me to do? It says the view of, this view of work as a vocation offers more than simply the possibility of serving God in one's daily work. It offers the possibility of serving God or by means of that work. To work is to serve God. Baxter's exhortation for, was for workers to serve the Lord in serving their masters. There is a moral dimension to work as well. When the Puritans spoke of the rewards of work, they almost automatically paired serving God with serving humanity. The main end of our lives, wrote Perkins, is to serve God in the serving of men in the works of our calling. If daily work is as central to the spiritual life as the Puritan doctrine of vocation asserts, it is no wonder that the Puritans threw themselves which zest into their work. We need, of course, to draw the distinction between the original Puritan work ethic and the secularized perversion that has followed. Secularized perversion is, I'm anxious, I'm driven, I never stop, I stay on top of it, and I'm freaked out, but I just keep moving because it won't catch me if I keep moving. But I'm loaded down, I pull my bootstraps harder, I breathe deeper, and I just keep pushing into it. Because it all depends on me and what I can produce. The Puritan version was... God, you've called me to this. Give me the grace to do that job well. See the difference? It's a calling. It's a, it's a vocation. It says, be laborious and diligent in your callings. And if you cheerfully serve God, notice that phrase, work hard. And if you cheerfully serve God in the labor of your hands, with a heavenly and obedient mind, it will be as acceptable to him as if you had spent all that time in more spiritual exercises. I translate that into English. If you have a hard job to do and you're doing your work, and maybe it's a tedious thing, right? Tedious is harder sometimes than hard work. Maybe it's one of those tedious things and you have to do a tedious thing and you can do that and you can do that cheerfully with the Lord. That's as good as having a quiet time in the Bible. Matter of fact, many times when you're doing that, the words from your quiet time will come to you when you're trying to do that kind of work. And it tells you to do that work cheerfully when the truth is most of the time we want to what? Grumble and complain. And you can tell the difference because there's a spirit of grumbling and complaining in our work. The Bible says, no, that's God's call. That's holiness. It's the furnace that forges out these character qualities. And therefore, Whatever you're given to do, do it cheerfully. And it's just easy to become a grump. You ever known some grumpy pastors? Worst violers of the world that are pastors, right? Grumble, grumble, bah, humbug, bah, 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 you're never doing what you're supposed to be doing, I'm never doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Ah. Okay, what's the spirit of a church when you do that? 
Is that any fun to go to? Yeah, right? What does it say? Do your work cheerfully. Do we study the word hard? Yes, we do. Do we laugh? Yes, we do. Why? Because there's funny stuff when we try to do it and we don't always get it right and a lot of it's humorous. Does that mean we quit trying? No. It means we work hard at what we're called to do. Is your job always fun? Brent's going, sure. (laughs) Is your job always fun? Is anybody's job always fun? Moms. Is your job always fun? I mean, what, what does changing dirty diapers have to do with serving the kingdom of heaven? Everything. Everything. Because that baby, that child, has been given to you by God as a steward. And you are to do that job. Which, Moms, is it easy to go negative in being a mom? Oh, boy. Can we grumble? Can we complain? Right? Guys, is it easy to complain at the job? I know we have lots of gals at work as well. Is it easy to complain? Yeah, it really is. This idea here is that your job is to be laborious and diligent in your callings. And if you cheerfully serve God in the labor of your hands with a heavenly and obedient mind, it will be as acceptable to Him as if you had spent all that time in more spiritual exercises or pursuits. What they're getting at here, the third quality is that all of life is God's. It says an additional genius of the Puritans was the skill to which they managed to view all of life as God's. The Puritans lived simultaneously in two worlds. For them, both worlds were equally real and life was not divided into sacred and secular. According to Thomas Gowage, the Christians should so spiritualize their heart and affections that we may have heavenly hearts in earthly employments. If God be God over us, wrote Peter Buckley, he must be over us in everything. And the idea here is you're doing your job and everybody's complaining. What makes, gives you the right to be so happy? I had people ask me that at Green Bay Canning. What makes you so happy? You're ticking us off. All the rest are grumbling. You're happy. We don't like that. You better start grumbling like us. What makes you, who gives you the right to be so happy? And what he's saying here is that the idea here, why we can, is because he, Jesus, must be over all. That's everything. Okay? It is no wonder then that the Puritans saw God in the commonplace. Richard Baxter asked his readers, Can you not think on the several places where you've lived and remember that they each had their several mercies? Okay, now that's old language we don't understand. He's saying, look back on your life. Remember the places where you lived and grew up? Remember the places where you went to school? Can't you look back and see God's mercy in all those different places you were at? Can't you see what he was doing during that time? Isn't hindsight beautiful? You can look and see Jesus' tracks all the way through it, right? Yep, there, yep, there, yep, there. Present looks like mud. But when you look in the past and you see his goodness to you in all those different places, it tells you he's in this present moment just as well. So you don't have to freak out. You can relax. He's with you just like he was in the past. He says, John Bunyan asks in the preface of God, Grace Abounding, Have you forgot the milk house, the stable, the barn, and the lake where God did visit your soul? In such a framework, in other words, with this worldview, this kind of picture, there are no trivial events. And all of life is potentially a teachable moment. One Sunday morning, when the young Robert Blair stayed home from church, i.e. he was skipping church, he looked out the window to see the sun shining brightly and the cow with the udder full. In other words, he looked out, sun was shining, he realized the cow needed to be milked. Blair remembered that the sun was made to give light and the cow was made to give milk, which made him realize how little he understood the purpose of his own life. Shortly thereafter, he was converted while listening to a sermon. There was no place where the Puritans did not find God. They were always open to what Baxter called, and I love this phrase, a drop of glory. That God might allow to fall upon their souls. In other words, going through the day. We call these divine appointments. They would call it a drop of glory. Where you're going along, going along, and all of a sudden, right, you see the Lord in it. Oh, wow, that's so cool. They called it a drop of glory. In their daily pursuits, as they were working to serve him, they 
saw a drop of glory. And you probably can right now think of places in your mind and times when that actually happened at home or at work or in the yard, if you're working on the car, where suddenly you saw something that became one of these drops of glory. Where you saw the Lord in it and you just went, oh, I didn't realize you were here. Oh, right? No? Hello, come on. Come on, get out of that intellectual American thing. Respond here, okay? Right? Have you ever been going along and you saw it, right? It was like, that is so cool. That's how we'd say it in American. They'd say drop a glory, right? But they're talking about where in this you see God's hand at work. C.S. Lewis wrote enthusiastically of the beautiful, cheerful integration of William Tyndale's world. He utterly denies the medieval distinction between religion and secular life. Such integration is one of the most attractive features of the Puritans. Their goal was an ordered and disciplined daily life that integrated personal piety, corporate life, everyday work, and the worship of God. Let me say that again. Their goal was an ordered and disciplined daily life that integrated personal piety, corporate life, everyday work, and the worship of God. You have a very, very important job. You did not wind up living where you're living because you decided to live there. The Bible says you were planted there. God plants men in their places. Okay? I am not living in Seattle by an accident, even though I grew up in Green Bay. You are not living here by an accident, even if you grew up in Seattle. You were placed here. And what you have to do is also given by God. It is very, very important. You need to start seeing your work at home or at work or however this fits, your list of things to do, okay, as given by God and to be done to the glory of God in that that is holy work. It is what you do and when you do it with the right heart, you please God and you sense His pleasure when you do it. Remember Eric Little? He was called to be a missionary and he told his sister, yes, but I'm also called to run. Because when I run, I feel His pleasure. What do you do? What are you called to that you feel His pleasure? It's such a fascinating thing. I'm going to ask the guys to come forward for communion because this is going to lead us right into communion. So guys, if you'd come forward, thank you so much for, for serving us. But I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 6. While they're coming through, this is a, a great encouragement off of this message this morning, and this also has to do with work. It says, for, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for His name, serving the saints as you still do. Paul is exhorting them. Paul's encouraging them. Thanks, Ben. Why? Why is Paul exhorting them? Because they were tired. Anybody ever get tired? You ever want to just lay down and take a nap? Okay. I, I want to get to the place in life where that's not something to do, but it's my job description. And unfortunately, it seems to be coming faster than I want it to. Right? Right? The idea there that, that they'd gotten tired. They, got, they were discouraged. They were like, boy, everything we've done, we've been at it a long time. It hasn't produced anything. We're weary. I don't know if we can keep going. And this is where grace comes in. Paul says this, look. God has not forgotten anything that you've done for Him in the kingdom. Whether you've come back to Him, whether uh, you, there was a gap in there where you didn't live for Him and now you've come back, whether you've lived for Him steady for 30 years, whether you're a somebody, whether you're a nobody. You're sitting out there going, man, I'm a nobody. How could I possibly please God? You can please God by doing what He's given you, to, what He's called you, what He's given you to do. He's just as happy with you if you're invisible to other people, but you're doing what he's asked you to do, as is if you're very public. Matter of fact, I think history is going to be fascinating and that those who are public will not garner near the recognition that those who operated behind the scenes. I think when we get to heaven, the question I want to ask God is, God will say, okay, here's history as you knew it. Now let me show you what really happened. Wow. Wow. And that, that will just make us go, wow. You want to know how we're going to praise God returning? He's just going to roll that stuff out. You thought this? Look at this. Wow. Wow. That is awesome. If I, oh, I wish I had known that. Wow. We'll just be ripped by the whole thing. It says, God will not overlook your work and the love. So therefore, what's that mean? Don't quit. 
All the stuff you've done for his name, all the stuff you've done living for him. Great. Don't stop now. What? You know what, God? I need a greater grace. You've heard me say this many times that I pray for grace appropriate to what God's called me to do. It may not have occurred to you that you need to pray for a grace appropriate for what God's called you to do. Most of the time doing this, I am over my head. And I've been at this 35 years, so you think you'd have it figured out by now? It's, it's amazing that people come to my office and I go, do you invent ways to sin? How did you come to this? Right? Like, I, really? So I have to work through that and try to figure it all out. Well, likewise, you may be at a place where your job is hard or difficult or hit a stretch or that kind of stuff, or you're even thinking of transitioning to a different job and you're wondering how to do that. Is the Lord in it? And does he remember? Yes. What you have to pray for is a grace appropriate for what he's called you to do. Moms, does that work? Boy, Lord, my kids are so different. None of them are the same. I know how to work with that. I don't know how to work with these three. Help! You need a grace appropriate to what he's called you to do. And it says, we desire each of you that you would show the same earnestness and have the same full assurance of hope until the end. And then this, so that you would not be, may not be, sluggish. You ever been sluggish in your work? Right? You ever just kind of slouched your way through it? Not really through it. You're just putting in your time, punching a card, just kind of going through the motions, whatever you had to do. This is encouraging you to don't, don't go through life that way. Don't just slug your way through life. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And of course, in that, we have Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, and all the people listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith. But I want to suggest something to you this morning that you probably have already thought of, and if you haven't, it might be a great idea for you. But when we come to communion this morning, we're talking about communion. I want to suggest to you that this is an object lesson that will reminds us of the great work that Jesus did. Jesus had an incredibly great work that he had to accomplish. And aren't you glad he didn't slug his way through work? Aren't you glad he did a good job? Aren't you glad that he did an all-sufficient job with the work that he was tasked to do? Was it easy to do what he was asked to do? No. To die for the sins of the world. I doubt I'd be willing to die for my sins let alone the sins of the world. Maybe for those close to me, i got news to you, there's people in the world I don't like. I don't know if I'd die for them. And yet Jesus did it in an all-sufficient way. Aren't we glad that he was good at his work? That he, he leaned into with joy? For the joy set before him, he did not scorn the cross. Aren't you glad? That he cooperated with God's grace on that. And so when we come to communion, it's a powerful picture of Jesus accomplishing work. He said, okay, here's bread. You eat it every day. You know what it is. He said, this is a picture. It's going to be a reflection of the work I did for you. This is a picture of my body that was broken for your sin. This is what I went through. This is the work I had to do. He said, I want you to never forget what it cost me. I want you to never forget what it took to earn the salvation that you have today. Don't go ever grow weary of it. Don't ever grow faint-hearted. Ask for a greater grace. Lean into it like I did. This, he said, do in remembrance of me. When it comes to the cup, the picture there is it was costly. We know if somebody sheds blood for a cause that that's the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus said, this was the ultimate price tag. It cost me everything. He said, it was not cheap. It was the best I could offer. I gave my life for it. You matter that much to me. I gave my life for you. He said, drink this in memory of me. If Jesus is the great example and person we're supposed to imitate, then we should do our work well too. 
Next week we'll look at how work gets all entangled up, but I wanted to anchor this down this morning. What is your things that you have to do? Look in your world. Has the Holy Spirit been bumping on anything, talking anything, saying you got to adjust here, you got to go here? Then do that work well in cooperation with His grace this week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this message. The sense is that it's uh, rung a clear bell in our hearts. There's not one of us that can't identify with that. And Lord, um, how grateful we are as a people, that you did your job well. What a fantastic spirit. What a fantastic job you did. And Lord, that was all done in cooperation with your Father. And we want to do the same thing, Lord. We want to cooperate in your grace with what you've asked us to do. And where we are uh, racked, where we are frail, where we are scared, May you help us lean into your grace and may our faith grow appropriate to the level of what you've called us to do. Lord, I do not know all of that you've called all my friends to. I know what you've called me to. And I know what you've asked me to lean into. And I ask that they would ring that bell exactly the same way that you've asked me to ring it. And Lord, may that create cheerfulness of heart and praise coming your way. And we give that to you in your name. Amen.